next little passage we're going to look at shows us three things. Jesus is seeable so you can stop guessing what God is like. Jesus is supreme so you don't have to fear. And Jesus is sufficient so you don't have to supplement him. So he is seeable, supreme, and sufficient. Why don't you stand up? That's our practice here at RUF to stand up when we read the word. Just a short little passage and then we'll, we'll dive into this. This is Paul continuing from what we looked at last week. He says in verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible. Doesn't matter whether they're thrones or dominions or oval offices or rulers or authorities, all things. We're created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, everything holds together. And he's the head of the church, head of the, head the, sorry, head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, which means the first resurrected, the first in the new world, the new life. So that in everything, he might be preeminent or supreme. For in Jesus, all, 100% of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why don't we pray? Jesus, I confess, could I confess on behalf of my friends, this probably is not the way we typically think of you. We think of you as a thing we need to do more we think of you as someone we should pray more to if we had more time. We think of you as someone who might bring some guilt into our lives because we haven't been good enough lately. This is different. This isn't you as a little ornament we hang in our lives, but this is you over everything, in everything, active everywhere. We are the tiny ones and you are the big one. And so I pray tonight, if these words are true, if you're a truth teller, would you come and do these very things for us? Show us yourself big and tall, and beautiful, and good, because we need it. We ask this in your name with great hope. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. Thanks. You've, you might have heard this story eight years ago, this past April. A woman in a little town in Austria walks into a police station, and she sits down with one of the detectives and she starts telling a story that blew their socks off. She started to tell them, I have just escaped from 24 years of captivity, being locked in a room. True story. This woman, uh, when she was 19 years old, her dad called her down to the basement to help hold a door up in the doorframe while he... Uh, installed it to the wall. And from that point for the next 24 years, she never left that room because he locked her inside of it and eight other huge metal and some concrete reinforced doors in a corridor he built under their house in Austria. And he forced her to write some letters saying, I hate my family, I'm running away, I'm joining this religious cult. And that's how he convinced this girl's mom and family that she had run away don't, don't leave the light on for me. I'm not coming home. This woman was 
alive and captive underneath her own house for 24 years. And her story gets a lot worse. Because over those 24 years, her father impregnated her seven times. She had six of those babies. One of them died. Three of those children grew up in that underground room behind eight metal doors, never seeing the light of day, never knowing of any other world other than a world about from here to this wall. The way they escaped is the, one of the oldest daughters of these children born in this room got so sick that she almost died. And Elizabeth, who's the, the girl who was originally put down there and had all these, had these kids, uh, w- convinced her father to, to let them go to the hospital to save her life. And the father concocted this scheme that, oh, she showed up from this religious cult. She came back, and so we're so happy. And and he was going to imprison her again once they got out of the hospital. They go to the hospital and they do what I just told you they did. They go to the police station and they tell him everything uh, that had happened. All they had down in that little room was some hot plates to heat up food. They had a refrigerator. He would bring them food a couple times a week. And they had a, a, a TV with video cassettes, like VCR. You remember what that is from your grandparents? They had a VCR so they could watch videos and stuff. That's all they had. Three kids, 19, 18, and 5 by the time they're released. If you've seen uh, this movie this past year, it got the Oscar for Best Actress. Have you seen the movie called Room? Amazing. This movie was based on the events that happened in Austria and another story that happened in Ohio similar to this, but for a much shorter time. And in that movie, The Room, there's this amazing scene. You can look it up on YouTube, even if you don't have the movie, that captures the little boy... When he's released, five or six years old, he's never known anything except for like if you were staring in this corner for five years. And he's in the bed of a pickup truck now, been taken out of this place, and he opens his eyes. Can you imagine? You can't, because you and I see the sky every day, we see... We see birds, we see trees, we see power lines and cars. You feel the cool, crisp breeze through your hair. But for him, it's literally like he got plucked out of his tiny little existence and plopped into the world. And he looks up and his eyes are just riveted on the sky. And he says, what is this? Where am I? Because he can't figure out which world is the real one, the one he knew and grew up in for those five years and his mom, 24 years, or the one that he is seeing right before his eyes. And so he's lying with his back down in the pickup truck, taking it all in, and he doesn't know. He's coming to grips with this. He doesn't know what to do with it. I tell you this story because I think it sets up perfectly the passage that we just read. I almost wanted to tell you that story before we read the passage. Because I think it prepares you to hear what I just read from Colossians in a little bit different way. And here's why. If you've been around the past few weeks or if you've ever read the book of Colossians, you've been picking up on this theme now, right? The first week it was a fireman breaking into your house and taking you out from the fire. And none of you ladies slept that night. And I'm sorry. Um, 
And then last week, Jesus being the one who breaks into this domain of darkness, the unbroken one, the only one who survived the fall, breaks into broken people's lives and brings them out and puts them back together. And then tonight, we hear this story of these people held captive, not even knowing another world existed, only getting tiny little glimmers. With that VCR, they're like, I don't know where this is. This doesn't look like my world. Only little glimmers of that. And they are released eventually, and they struggle to come to grips with this new place that they live. And my, my, my suggestion is that we actually uh, have a lot we can relate to these women and these little boys who were held in captivity for so long. Because there are those of you in the room right now who uh, you've heard, it's like you're in that little room, you've heard stories about this other world, and they just sound like stories. Do they sound like fairy tales? God sounds like a fairy tale. Christianity sounds like just one step beyond plausibility or logical. You're just like, yeah, I can't believe this stuff. And, and this illustration asks you, could it be you're in captivity and you don't even know that other world existed? All you're getting is faint little glimmers, tiny little reminders that maybe, just maybe, there is something out there. But you've concluded, no, this little 10-foot by 5-foot world is the only world that there is. Some of you have been broken out of that existence, and you know it, because you know what that day or what those months or years were like when you're sitting, as it were, with your back on the ground, looking at the world for the first time you never knew existed, a world where you're alive again, you're free, finally, you know God, he's not an idea, he's not a religion, he's a person, he's real, he's beautiful, you've woken up, he's brought you back to life. And you've been set free, and you remember, but you are just like those kids who were set free. You don't know what to do with it. You're like, what is this place? How do I, I don't even know how to live in this world, much less what it all means. What I know is the old life. What I know is where I grew up, where I spent all that time before. I know the darkness. I don't really know how to live in the light. And so we're slowly coming to grips with this new life in Jesus. And that could be whether you've been a Christian for 15 years or whether you've been one for 15 days. There's this tension now as you struggle to figure out what does it even mean to be alive? What does it even mean to be in a relationship with God? It's said of people in captivity, you might have heard this before, you can take a person out of prison, but you can't take prison out of a person. That's what we talked about last week with Brooks and Shawshank Redemption, remember? Brooks was released from the penitentiary, but the penitentiary was never released out of Brooks. And so he killed himself a couple of weeks later because he didn't know how to live on the outside. Brooks didn't know what freedom was. Brooks didn't know what life outside of captivity was. He didn't know how to do it, and he broke they say you can take a man out of prison, but not prison out of a man. Well, the gospel, which is good news, which is what the Bible is all about, the gospel would tweak that and say this. God can take you, and God will take you. He is willing and able to take you out of prison in a heartbeat. But he sees fit to take a lifetime to take the prison out of you. He can release you from captivity with a single word, be free, or rise up, or live, or let there be light, and the light bulbs go off, and you're like, he's real, this is true. He can do that in a second. But he chooses to take a lifetime to slowly take the prison, the captivity, the slave mindset, 
out of you. And that's why you could have been a Christian for your whole life, and life is complicated, right? It's not like everything gets better. All of a sudden, everything makes sense. There's stuff in your life that doesn't make sense. There's stuff that you think God has done in your life that doesn't make sense. There's places you're still enslaved. There's places you still give yourself to, and I do too. And you wonder, if I'm really free, why am I so tempted by this, or why do I keep giving into this? I think it's for the reasons that we've said here. So here's my point. I think Paul is laying on his back. And I think he's saying to these Colossians and he's saying to you, look at this. Look at this. And I think he's helping us come to grips with the world some of you already live in. And he's inviting some of the rest of you into a world you've never known before but is yours for the taking in Jesus. And so whether you're in this in-between place where you're like, yes, I'm alive, I'm new, I'm free, but I don't, yeah, I still don't know. I'm like that little boy. I have no clue. The first thing about living in this world that's so bigger than I ever thought, or whether you're the one still in captivity, I think Paul is speaking to you. And the way this hits home with us is because we are people, whether you're outside of the room or still stuck in the room, who shortchange Jesus. That part comes really clearly through this. Actually, I should say if you read on a couple more verses, which we'll look at next week. But Paul knows we are people who have such a huge view of the little tiny bubbles we do life in, the me bubble, the me room, that Jesus becomes very tiny and very unbelievable and very out there, just like the world that these kids saw glimmers of but never really saw. Paul knows we're prone to have a very tiny God and a very big me. That's why he writes this little, it's called the Christ hymn. That's why he writes it. If you don't know that, this doesn't make sense. You're like, Paul was in a really good mood that day. And he was really all about Jesus that day. It just doesn't make sense. Paul is showing how beautiful and big and powerful Jesus is because the people he's writing to don't see it that way at that moment. They see him as tiny and weak and impotent. So Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Come with me, lay down on your back and take it all in. You've got such a tiny little view, such a big you. And so for everybody in the room, Paul says, take a harder look at Jesus. Take a harder look at Jesus. Let's spend the last few minutes we have together to talk about these little three things pretty briefly, but it takes a little bit of time to set that up. What is Jesus like? He's seeable, and so you can stop trying to guess what God is like. And what I mean by that is doing what I did all throughout high school and all throughout college. Maybe you've done it too. Maybe you're, maybe you're an expert in this too. Where you kind of make up a God of your own imagination. Here's the evidence. You catch yourself saying stuff like this. I just can't believe in a God who fill in the blank. You're, you're just making up a God and handing him a script and saying, hey, please do this for me. And that God doesn't exist. Or if you're like me <laughs> uh, and uh, you get to these places where you're like, I like to believe that God is like this. Or I choose to believe that God is like this. Well, I'm sorry, but God doesn't wait for our opinion on what he should be like and then say, okay, I'll change myself and and we'll do that. We'll go that way. But that's evidence of a person who doesn't really know the real God and so we make him in our image. We don't realize he's already a person with character and a reputation and a history and a personality and everything else and so we just fill in the gaps with whatever we want it to be. He's kind of like a Mr. Potato Head. I want the nose here and the eyes there, but none of this over here. We do that because we don't know that he, God has already made himself seeable and knowable. 
And so we grope in the dark and try to fill in the gaps, and we come out with this monstrous God who looks just like us, right? And a God who's just like you can't save you, right? Because he has the same shortcomings you do. He has the same weaknesses you do. He has the same failures you do. You don't need a God like you. You need a God infinitely different than you. Jesus is the picture or the image, Paul says, of the invisible God. So he's acknowledging, yes, in a sense, you can't see God. So for all the people who say, where's your God? Bertrand Russell gets to heaven. He he says, what are you going to say to God when this famous atheist stands before him? And he says, you didn't give me enough evidence. So Paul's saying, okay, yes, God is invisible, but he doesn't just say that. He says, the invisible God has made himself visible. In other words, walked into the room with a body in Jesus, who is God and man. God has taken on flesh, which means he's made himself knowable. Which means Bertrand Russell has nothing to say before the living God who took on flesh and came to be one of his own creatures. You didn't give me enough evidence. Yes, I did. His name is Jesus Christ. He came in history. It is more documented than any other human being in ancient history. What did you do with the evidence, though, Bertrand? That's the conversation that probably happened. Not there wasn't evidence. Here's the encouraging part of this. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Do you want to know what God would do when someone just pitifully sexually broken approaches him? Look what Jesus does when the sexually broken approach him. Woman at the well, prostitutes, whores, everyone else. Do you want to know what God would do when he sees you as you are? There's tons of instances where you can see what Jesus has done when people just like you walk up to him. Do you want to know what Jesus does or what God would do in the face of sin? Does he kind of laugh it off? Does he say, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it, and you walk off a cliff? Jesus got very upset. Jesus told it like it was. He didn't manipulate. He didn't spin. He didn't lie. He didn't people please. Do you want to know what Jesus can do with your weakness and your inability to fix yourself? Bible's full of real people's lives being turned upside down because they crossed paths with Jesus. Jesus is God in living color. Jesus is God in the flesh. And so if you want to know what God is like, look at him. You pour yourself into this. You pour yourself in to things like small groups or reading the Bible or coming and hearing this kind of stuff because what it is is you looking through the window and saying, that's the God who is. That's the God of the Bible. And you don't have to make it up anymore. And that's a good thing. That's great. I was so hollow, so empty for so many years with a Mr. Potato Head God that I didn't know and that I didn't like until the real God came to me and said, Ben, this is who I am. That made all the difference. So Jesus is seeable, so we don't have to guess anymore. Paul says he's the image of the invisible God. He also says that this visible Jesus... Uh, in verse 16, made the visible world. And so you would expect to see some kind of a correlation between Jesus and the stuff Jesus made, right? That's why if you look at the creation, if you look at the way the world operates, the way it all coheres and fits together, you'll see fingerprints that belong to him. Talk about this in just a second. The second point, Jesus is supreme, and so you don't have to fear Jesus is seeable, so you don't, have to, you don't have to make it up or guess, but Jesus is supreme, and so you don't have to fear. And let me, here's how, here's how um, just flatly stated a promise this is. Whether you're a Christian or not, that promise lands in your ears tonight. Doesn't matter. 
You don't know God. You feel like you're dead. He's just an idea to you. You you find it hard to believe. This promise still comes to you that Jesus is supreme. You don't have to fear. There's an option not to fear. If you grew up in the church, you've heard something like this in the past. You've heard it. It's on Hallmark cards everywhere. Nothing can separate you from God's love to you in Christ, right? Nothing. And then he goes through this big list. Caesar can't do it, or the government can't do it. Uh, He says principalities or demons or whatever else, no forces, nothing. And if we expanded that list, your own apathy can't separate you from the love of God in Christ. Cancer or your mom or your dad dying or a divorce can't separate you from the love of God in Christ. Your own bad decisions or your regret or your shame cannot separate you. A professor who corners you and and demeans you can't separate you from the love of God in Christ. Sickness, whatever, whatever it is. And why, why, how can he make such a big promise? That's a, like someone should question him and say, uh, okay, and how are you able to say this? Like, what's your proof? This is the proof. Jesus is above everything. He's supreme. He has no competitor. He's not in some like Greek mythological God war with these other like Zeus and Mars and everybody else. Jesus, or the Bible claims Jesus is supreme. There's nobody else on the field that he's battling against. He is a king. He's victorious. He's seated down on a throne. He's not like sweating, freaking out. What am I going to do? I'm not sure I'm going to lose this battle over here, whatever. He's supreme. And because cells answer to Jesus, cancer answers to Jesus. Because uh, the physical world answers, answers to Jesus, tornadoes and hurricanes and fires and earthquakes answer to Jesus too. Because even you and everything about you answers to Jesus, so does your apathy, so does everything else. Some of you all have told me recently, I've been running from God the past few years, but you said, here I am. He was running after me. Even your own apathy, even your own coasting didn't separate you from him. He's supreme. There's no, there's no rogue thing out there that can snatch you away that Jesus isn't in control of. And I get it. Hey, some of y'all are thinking, well, my mom has cancer, so what's up now? This is a, you can't say I haven't been honest. The passage very forthrightly says this is a broken world that Jesus is putting back together. My point is, would you rather have cancer knowing that God can't do anything about it, that he's not in control? Or would you, rather get, would, would you rather be sick in a way that you know your father who loves you will not allow it to not be for your benefit? He will hijack the worst of the worst and turn it for your good because he is in control, not it. Would you rather live in a world where there is a king who issues orders and everything obeys, Or would you like to live in a world where there's demons and evil and your own past and your decisions waiting to ambush you and destroy you? Which world would you rather live in? The Bible says the only world that is is a world where there is a king who's in control of it all. So he says, Christian, if you are attached to this king at the hip, at least logically, do you understand how we can not fear as much? Because even if the worst of the worst happens, is the one who gave his life for you still in control? Is the one who is resolutely, fiercely for you still calling all the shots? Yes. 
And I, I have a good relationship with my dad. I know some of you don't. I love him. I love my mom. It's a comforting thought to me to know that my dad, if he's in control of everything at his office or something, that he's going to look out for me. That's what Paul is saying. Jesus is for you. And so even if the chaos hits you and cuts you, he is still in control even of the chaos that has made summer and life very, very hard and complicated for some of you. There's one other thing I want to touch on before we push on to the last point and end, and it's this. This is going to raise more questions than I can answer, so let's go to Denny's and talk about it after. I believe this with everything in me, and I think I can persuade you. But the reason the university is such a fruitful place to spend four years is because learning actually yields fruit. Because Jesus has made his world in such a way that it is knowable. Here's what I mean. The world is predictable because the one who governs the world is predictable. The world is knowable because of the one who made the world is knowable. Science is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow because the one who governs all of its laws is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The boiling temperature of water doesn't just wake up in a bad mood and say, today I'm going to make them work harder and bump it up 20 degrees. It was the same 10 years ago and 1,000 years ago and 5,000 years ago. The laws of logic don't really wake up and say, you know what, let's switch things up today and mess with them. Because the way, the, the way Jesus has woven the fabric of reality is one where thoughts matter, ideas matter, they yield certain results, and there's a wrong way to think and a right way to think. You can predict the weather because Jesus, with a steady hand, issues the same commands to the moisture and the high pressure and the low pressure and the condensation. The world is stepping along in a predictable, steady way because there is a predictable, steady king who's over all of it. That's what Paul says. I'm not, if you disagree with me, don't kill the messenger. This is right out of the Bible. All things were made by him, through him, and for him. He is above all, right? Says everything answers to him. He is preeminent. I think this should make better students out of you. Because now your astronomy class or your meteorology class or your accounting class or your law class or your nursing class or your physiology class or your mechanical engineering class isn't just this secular episode in trying to get a better grade so you can get an internship. Now, if this is true, it pulls it under the umbrella of Jesus and it says, I get to figure out how Jesus designed different forces to interplay with each other and build a bridge that doesn't crash. Or I get to figure out how he designed a cell to transfer water or to transfer other things. And I get to go figure out how to get some medicines that push back the disorder and the darkness of the fall. And I get to participate in what he's doing. Or English, he made words and words matter and they're beautiful and you can make art with words. I think this is really practical to you loving school more. Because Jesus is supreme. He's not this little weird religious icon over here that we go rub his belly when we need something or a good grade on a test. Jesus, Abraham Kuyper said, there's not a single square inch of reality over which he doesn't point to and say, this is mine. There's not a single square inch in all of reality that Jesus doesn't point to and say, mine. And he has used his power, he has used his rule in the most beautiful, life-giving Sin pushing back ways. Hasn't he? Even if you don't think that he did it, you have to say, well, the Bible says, if this is true, 
The way the Bible describes the way Jesus has used his infinite power is for pretty good ends. He is setting all things right. Paul says, and what next week's really about is how does this affect us and our brokenness. But he says in verse 20, through Jesus, God is reconciling or reintegrating, putting back together all things through Jesus. The last thing, actually, let me say this. The Christian life is also all about Jesus. And this is something that really struck me personally. If the Christian life is all about Jesus, it becomes problematic when the Christian life becomes all about me. Now, here's a really religious, spiritually pious way that the Christian life could actually become about me and not Jesus. Um, Speaking personally and speaking on behalf of you as well, has, has the Christian life for you shrunk down to beating porn? Has the Christian life shrunk down to just not masturbating as much as you used to or eating better or not caring as much about your body type? Or has the Christian life become about controlling your anxiety better? Has the Christian life become just about becoming a more self-disciplined person? Do you see how if it has, Jesus has left the building and life is just this crippling battle with just you and whatever struggle you have or struggles you have. And it seems so spiritual to say, to go to the small group and say, I failed here, I failed there, I'm working on this, I really struggle with this. That sounds so spiritual. But do you see how we can get distracted and take our eyes off Jesus, the powerful one, the redeeming one, the one who speaks grace to you in the midst of your worst places, the one who sets you free, We can lose sight of that and get all wrapped up in how many times did I do X, Y, or Z this week? How long has it been since I did this or that? I'm not saying those things don't matter. I'm not saying there's not moral and ethical implications for being alive in Jesus. There are. But I'm saying the times in my life when I thought I was following God, thought I was walking with him, but I was so wrapped up in my tiny, tiny, tiny little world of how long has it been since I've done X, Y, or Z? That's not the Christian life. That's you looming so large that Jesus becomes very tiny. Guess what? He catches all the blame from you too, right? We get angry with him when he's tiny and we're big and we're stuck and it's just us and our struggle. Paul would come to you and with a smile on his face, he'd say, oh, brother, sister. Okay, just stop talking. You You just sit there and let me talk about Jesus for a minute. He's not oversimplifying. He's just saying, hey, lean back and take it all in. You've gotten so focused on this tiny little thing over here. Just lean back and take it all in. The last thing is this. Jesus is sufficient, and so you don't have to supplement him. And this is kind of where we set ourselves up to come back next week, but I just want to say this. Like I said earlier, Paul Paul knew he was writing to people who are very prone to uh, think Jesus isn't enough. There are people just like us, even though the technology was different, Jesus plus the perfect body so I can feel like life's under control. Jesus plus Amazon Prime so I can get a little taste of newness and freshness that's not broken. These are people who said Jesus plus partying on the weekend because I can get a, finally get a little taste, that little jolt of excitement that's not there. Jesus plus this emotional nirvana where I'm never sad but always happy 
so that I don't have to be dependent and I don't have to trust and I don't have to see through the fog. Jesus plus a better personality so everybody will think I matter more than I currently do. Jesus plus omniscience so I can see around every corner and not get scared anymore. Do you see how we see Jesus as not measuring up? He's deficient and so I need a vitamin. I need a supplement. I need Amazon Prime. I need, I I love Amazon Prime. I just pick on it a lot. (laughs) We need Jesus plus the little thrill, plus the little boost, plus the little extra, because he's not enough. Do you see how that happens? This is just down in the trenches everyday life. Next week, we'll come back to this, but friends, just hear this. Paul says, all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus Christ. He's not lacking. He's the firstborn in creation. He's the first in recreation and redemption. He's everything, alpha, omega, beginning and the end, the first, the last, and everything in between. Do we need these little trinkets because he's deficient or do we not see him as sufficient as he actually is? My encouragement to you tonight as we end is this. Don't ask Jesus to come into your life. Your life's too small for him. Ask him to bring you into his Don't ask him to come into your world. Ask him to bring you into his world. So much bigger. So much better. So much more beautiful. Lay on your back and take it all in. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus, the perfect one, the sufficient one, the seeable one, the supreme one, to rescue us from ourselves, to make us good and new and right again, to make us at peace with you, friends with you, not enemies, to bring us into the light, to break us out of the dungeon. He's done it all, not just sometime in the past, but every day he renews his grace. He sustains us. He upholds us. He walks with us. He cares for us. He loves us. Help me and my friends believe what oftentimes seems unbelievable or hard to believe. We ask this in your name. Amen.